0: Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it no lion will be there nor will any ferocious beast get up on it they will not be found there but only the redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of the lord will return they will enter zion with singing everlasting joy will crown their heads gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away
1: thank you thank you very much that's a fantastic prophetic uh, poem from Isaiah. Uh, much of Isaiah's works kind of um, fall into that category. But it just as a standalone kind of bit of poetry. It's absolutely beautiful. I hope you enjoyed it. That's what it's primarily for, I suppose, to be, actually to hear it and enjoy it. And then what we find is it's full of so much more meaning, uh, depth and breadth than just some nice words on a page. I wonder if um, anyone's got one of these yet. This is available for you today. This is our Helping Bristol Believe City Church Vision booklet. It should be available at the back after the meeting. Um, on the front, it says Helping Bristol Believe, and inside, it breaks down uh, the vision that God's given us as a church throughout Bristol uh, to reach um, and to restore and to resource what God is doing amongst us and beyond us, uh, both now and into the future. And this is the first time we've really written this down. So you can grab your copy today and find out a bit more about the details of those things, if that interests you. On the front, though, it says, Helping Bristol Believe. And that really should beg a question, which is what? (laughs) Helping Bristol Believe what? What are you believing? What is it that you believe in? And that's a very important question to ask. In fact, the question of, of course, for us as, as Christians, the question of what is God like? What is this God that you believe in? What is he like? That's one of the most fundamental, uh, fundamental questions that you could ask yourself, um, other than something like, who am I, um, uh, and can I know God? These are the huge questions for us. And Actually, this passage that we've read uh, goes some way to help us understand something of what is God like. What is this God like that you want, that we want, to help Bristol believe in? Is he, because, because we all have different ideas. I suppose we would come to the table with our own thoughts, maybe, about who God is and what he's like. And in fact, if we asked any one of us, or maybe we just did a poll on the street, what's God like? We'd get all kinds of different answers. For some, they would simply say, well, he doesn't exist. And maybe for them, and for some I've heard speak about this, they'd say, the, the God that I see, the, the God that you, of the Bible, at least from what I understand, he seems like a cruel dictator, and therefore i just dismiss any thoughts of who God is it just doesn't exist they would just say that's just not something i want to think about that's just not something that i believe in but others would have different answers some might say well i think he is this i think he is just a cruel dictator that's what god's like he's just mean some might say no well there, i believe in some kind of god but he's sort of a distant unknowable force behind everything you know but distant and unknowable some might say well, maybe maybe god is like an absent-minded professor Or a mean teacher, we all had them, didn't we? You know, this kind of slightly mean and vindictive, you know, really waiting to get you, that's really what he's about. And some would say, well, that's what God is like. Some might even say, well, I think God is like a disinterested father. And all of those would be things that people might say. In fact, we'd have as long a list as we have people in the room, or in any room, or in any street, I guess. Everyone would have their idea if they had any thoughts at all about it. But the Bible tells us what God is like. And that's where we need to start. You see, if we start with our experience, it's always going to be flawed because our experiences are flawed and narrow. We need to start with someone telling us, of course, the Bible says God's come and he's told you what God is like. He's explained it. He's demonstrated it. And ultimately, the Bible says that's through Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. In fact, it says, uh, Paul writes in Colossians 1, he says, he, and he's talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. That's, it's Jesus. That's who God is. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. That's how you find out. That's how you would know. That's the most tangible, the most approachable, the most human way of understanding it. Of course, we know Jesus fully God and fully man. Came in a way that we would get it. We would understand. And so when we see him, we see something that we can grasp. And so the New Testament does that. It does it in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then through the, the kind of the workings of that early group of followers of Jesus, and then through the letters that they wrote to each other over the next few years. But the Old Testament does it too. The Old Testament, through the stories, through the characters, through the kind of the, the building of a nation, we find something of what God is like. And the Old Testament is full of images and poetry and, and metaphors and, and stories of individuals, some kind of fantastic and some very personal, some very broad speaking, some narrow and full of minute detail. But the Old Testament tells us this it tells us that God is a God who is ferocious with sin. It tells us that sin has invaded like, a, like an invasive species in a garden, that it's come in and it's choked everything, and it just wants to kill and destroy everything that's good that God has made. It tells us that God is holy and pure and faultless and that we are not, but that we very much need to be. And it points us to a saviour who would come, of course it's Jesus, who would come and rescue all who would believe and would begin a process of putting everything right. And the challenge is to believe what the Bible tells us about God. That's our challenge. That's the challenge for you in your seat and for me standing here today. It's a challenge of what we might say to people when we're saying, yeah, we want to help Bristol believe this. Well, what? It's these things. It's this content. It's not, well, I've got some idea I'd like to share. No, this is, it's right here in black and white. We can read it and understand it and experience it. And this shouldn't just be something that we, we kind of, All well, I know what I'm supposed to say. No, this should, be, this should imbibe us. It should be in us. It should affect how we think, how we behave, our attitudes, our decisions, our very lives. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they should deny themselves, take up their cross every day and follow me. That means putting these things foremost, front and center. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's dying to ourselves. You see, if you pick up a self-help book, it will tell you something very different. Be who you really are. The Bible says die. It's totally different. It's totally different. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. This is a kingdom that we need to know God to understand. Um, The man who started our group, our family of churches, which is now many hundreds of churches around the world, called Terry Virgo, he used to say this a number of times. I I heard him say this. He said, "The, the greatest challenge for the 21st century Christian is that we can just live our lives as if God didn't exist. We can live essentially secular lives like everybody else does. In other words, we just live in response to the goings on around us. Just get up and have my breakfast and I go to work and I watch what's on the news and I respond to some of those things and that's essentially who I am. That's just how how it goes for me. And actually the Bible is telling us something very fundamental and very different about who God is and what God has done. In fact, Paul in two what, two Corinthians says this. He says, "We walk by faith, not by sight." Again, an opposite way round of thinking. He says, "What he's saying is, we walk by what we know is true, not by what we think is true, what we believe is true, from all those world around us, but what we live by what we know is true about God. That's your firm foundation. Who is Jesus? What's he done, and what is he doing?" And here in Isaiah, what we find is a beautiful poem, something that helps us understand something of the nature and character of God. And it's written to a nation who are going to be facing incredible hardship and difficulty. They've grown complacent in their relationship with God themselves. And it's going to cause them great difficulty in the future. And this is written to them. It's kind of looking forward to a time when they'll be in exile. And it's reminding them, even as it's looking forward, there's hope. There's hope to be found in this great God. And Isaiah gives us a series of contrasting pictures, metaphors really, and, he, and it's easy to put ourselves in the picture. So he talks about a desert and then rejoicing. He talks about weakness turned into strength and encouragement. He talks about the blind seeing and the lame leaping. He talks about burning sand becoming a place of pools and peace. And he puts these in our heads because he wants us to say, this is Maybe your experiences are like some of this, but this is God. This is how God works. This is how he interacts. This is what happens when God comes, when he bursts in on the scene. Firstly, then, he says a desert. It's like the first line is the, the desert and the parched land. I don't know what you think of, whether you've ever been to a desert. I expect some of you have. Maybe um, we, we used to live in South Africa, and we drove through the Karoo, and it was hour after hour after hour after hour of just nothing. Nothing. You just hope we don't break down, because there really isn't anything for just hours. And occasionally a small town, and it's not just sand, but it's not much can really grow there. But then there's other deserts, like the Sahara, the great sand, kind of dunes of the Sahara, and we can just imagine it. And, and when we think about it, we think of this kind of widescreen HD extravaganza, don't we? That's what we think. Well, I do, usually. Now, that's not what the hearers of this, that's not what came to mind for them. It wasn't, oh, wow, magnificent, Wow, what a beautiful experience. Wouldn't it be lovely to go on holiday there? That's not what they thought. These were subsistence farmers. Parched land was a tragedy. It was desperate because they lived on what they could grow. Earlier this year, Woody and I, Woody's one of our other elders, we went to Mozambique and we visited. It was a great honor to visit some subsistence farmers. And just so that you know um, how hard it is to, it, this is a fertile place, by the way, Mozambique's very fertile. There's lots of water. Um, you know, lots of things grow. In fact, they, they, mangoes grow everywhere. And someone suggested kind of farming mangoes. and Everyone was like, you, t- you don't have to farm mangoes. There's just trees everywhere with mangoes on. They're wanting to make mango chutney, actually, which sounds quite nice. Um, but this is a fertile and well-watered land. And so we visited people who were making a living from the soil. And just the amount of work that it takes, even when it's fertile and well watered, the preparing of the ground is backbreaking. Honestly, it's backbreaking. Access to water is a daily concern, even when there's a river nearby. How are you gonna get it from the river into the field? For these people, that's what it was like. How is this gonna happen? Keeping young plants free from insects and animal attacks, that's again, it's a daily concern. You turn up the next morning and half of it's gone because something got in in the night and did it. The possibility of disease decimating the crop. They were looking under the leaves of the tomato plants, checking for disease all the time. And simply the distances to the plot of land was just staggering. Woody and I, we walked for an hour or more just to get to where they could farm. And this is what they did this every day. And this was in 35 degree heat. So when you hear the parched land, you need to hear it with those ears. This is a desperate tragedy. It's it's the end. We're not going to be able to grow anything. The family's going to starve. This is what it means when the farming goes wrong. This is what happens to these people. And so that's, that's, that's what this is summing up inside the hearer. And then suddenly you find the desert and the parched land will be glad how is this going to happen? How could this be? How can it turn around so fast? It seems like an impossible task, and yet there is a contrast that God is wanting us to understand, to grasp something. This is what happens when God comes, and then the contrast is really ladled on thick, because what we find is Isaiah uses three place names. He says, if, that's, if that was the fear in your hearts of a fruitless land, now this is what I want you to think of when God comes. And he first he uses is Lebanon. Now, Le- Lebanon was synonymous with the growing of cedar trees in the Old Testament. Cedar trees is what they used a lot of to build the temple and other kind of large buildings. If you want to do something dramatic, you went to Lebanon and you, and you got trees. And of course, for a tree to grow, it requires a long period of, of kind of fertility. It's got to, it takes a long time to grow. And so Lebanon would speak something of majesty of these, of these incredible forests, something of, uh, uh, of the longevity of a fruitful land. Then Mount Carmel, what we find, Mount Carmel was always synonymous with incredible beauty. In fact, Solomon referred to his wife as Mount Carmel. Guys, that's probably not the way to go, actually, but that's, what he, that's he said his wife was like Mount Carmel in Song of Songs in chapter 7. And actually, even today, Mount Carmel is a UNESCO biosphere reserve. And it's, a, it's an international world heritage site and a place of great natural beauty. You can see much of Israel from Mount Carmel. And so Isaiah is saying, that's what God does. This kind of beauty, the beauty that would have been famous across around the, the known world, that's what happens when God comes. You know the place that you know that is the most fruitful, the most stunning, the most breathtaking? That's what happens when God comes, in contrast to the parched desert. And then finally he says, it's like Sharon. And we're like, what? that's a place. So, what, so Sharon was a, it is in fact, it's a, a strip of fertile soil near the Mediterranean. And it's renowned for its fruitfulness, but mostly it's renowned for the variety of things that grow there. And it's just, it's just the variety is staggering. And so that's what Isaiah wants you to think about. That's what God wants you to think about. This is what happens when God breaks in. The turnaround, the contrast, the hope that that would bring is phenomenal. And we see God dealing with parched land and fruitless land. And now the picture focuses on people. Because in verse 3 we find, we find feeble hands and weak knees and fearful hearts. And when we hear these things, we need to understand that this picture language means something more than the physical weakness in the knees or the hands. For hands, we need to understand an individual's ability to work and affect change, to make progress. So the individual person, maybe, maybe back to the farming metaphor, for them to grow for their family, that's, that's what's been lost. That ability to, to make things happen for yourself, that's, the hope for that is gone. The hopelessness of the nation has affected them so deeply that they've lost the ability to use their hands. And their knees. Weak knees speaks about instability and a lack of maneuverability. That's also been what's been lost, where hope is lost. I just feels I feel stuck to the spot. I can't. I don't. Seem, I can't make anything happen. I can't get anywhere. It just seems like nothing will change. I can't move. We, we use that language ourselves. I just felt rooted to the spot. Fear does that to you, doesn't it? I just can't. I couldn't move like a deer in the headlights or a rabbit, whatever kind of creature that you can think of. I'll be caught in the headlights. Fearful hearts, of course, we've been much more familiar with. But again, there's a paralyzing, a personal paralyzing. Like I can't don't seem to do the things I'd like to do. Why? Because my heart is fearful. I don't want to take any risks. Why? Because my heart is afraid. And what is the instruction to those? What's his instruction to a nation, to people with their heads down, who've lost hope? The circumstances are dictating the mood. And what is the instruction? It says, it says, say to those, be strong, do not fear. And that's the hope. It's, it's not kind of, well, buck your ideas up, it might never happen. No, actually, it already has happened. The worst has already happened. And that's, this, this, this poem is written to a nation, they're going to be in exile when they read it. The worst has already happened. And yet, without shame, the writer says it's still thoroughly appropriate to put your hope in God. It's still absolutely the right thing to put your hope in God. It's it's almost shameless. It's like, well, hang on, have you not seen the circumstances? But the circumstances never dictate the result when Jesus is involved. They never have and they never will. That's what we believe. We believe in a God who conquered death. The circumstances never dictate the result, the grave is shut. The cross is past, it's days since he died. And yet, it's not over. It seems like everything he's saying is saying it's over. It's finished. It's shut down. Everything we hoped in is gone. And yet, he breaks the power of death. And that's why we hope. That's where. And that's what this is pointing to. It's pointing to a hope that's not to do with your circumstance. And this is an unshakable hope. You can't. You can't steal this because you can't. The enemy can't do it because he, he, he can't get to you. He can maybe change your circumstance, but the the circumstances don't matter anymore. Why? Because we believe in a God who lives beyond the circumstance. His power is to conquer death, to change everything. And so it says with confidence, strengthen these feeble hands and weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, your God will come. And it's saying it with confidence, with authority. And so it says to us too. the end of that little passage there in verse 4 it says this he will come to save you he will come to save you have you ever watched a a football match and maybe some of you have and your side is doing particularly badly and the conversation sometimes happens in our house actually the conversation goes if they just brought so and so on just bring this guy on and, and it would change the nature of the game. Why isn't he subbing this guy in? I know that happens because I've been with some of you when you shout it at the television screen. Bring him on, bring this guy on in our house uh, when I'm sitting with Sam sometimes. I say, why don't I bring Beckham on? And Sam looks at me and like, because he hasn't played for 30 years or whatever it is. So that's just how it goes in our house. Shows how closely I follow football these days. But we, we understand if the champion came on the pitch, everything would be different. If only, if only he came and, and played as, as part of this game, it would all change. Well, that's what Isaiah is telling us. He will come. He's come. He's on the pitch. He's with you. Everything is different. Of course, it does sometimes work in football. Sometimes that does work, doesn't it? It brings someone on. Oh, it's like a different game. Second half, subs come on. My goodness, they're like a different team. That's what it's like to know Jesus. That's what it's like to follow him. That's what it's like to believe in this God, in this God who comes and rescues. And then finally what we see is, we see the nature of this champion and Isaiah in kind of full prophetic force, now looking through the ages, the hundreds of years ahead, he he says this, and it can only be about Jesus, he says then in verse five, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the death of the ears unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongues shout for joy, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now there's blind eyes opening. There's lame people leaping. This isn't just raining in the desert now. The water's coming up from underneath. This, is, this transformation is, just, is going way beyond the natural expectation of maybe it would rain one day. Now it's bursting up from the ground. God has come. It says this, it says, in the, in the ground where jackals once lay, and, and the picture language for jackals would be robbers and thieves, p- people who've come in to steal, and that would be, that would be physically, but also spiritually too. You've, you've been robbed of things. Stuff's hurt you. And it's taken ground, it's taken root. The, the jackal's happy to lie down there, and it says, no, that's different now. Now we find rushes and reeds. Again, that would be, you can build houses and make roofs. Community life is now possible. These images and emotive metaphors, this prophetic poem sets before us part of the answer to the question, what is God like? What is he like? And that's what we're to help Bristol believe. Believe in a God of hope, a God of help, a God of rescue, a God who will come. It's not that, well, we can put some nice schemes on and that will help you, know, God will come. He will rescue you. He's a God who saves That's the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus. Not we could do better, and maybe if we did it together it would help. Those things might be true, but the gospel of Jesus is he has come for you. You To believe in him. It's easy to find ourselves on the wrong side of these metaphors though, isn't it? We hear the desert and the parched land, and we think, yeah, that's where I am. Forget the rejoicing, I'm over there. We hear about the the feeble hands and weak knees, and yeah, that's me. I, I identify with the weak knees and the feeble hands, that's where I stand. We live our lives in the desert. We feel profoundly weak. We're aware of our, of, our, of our vulnerability. But God still invites us to hope in him. And in a moment, I think we're going to take communion. And as we do that, in fact, let's stand even now. Because we're going to do this in a moment. I'm going to say one or two things before we do it. This meal is about reminding us, I need this in me. <laughs> when we eat and drink, it's like, I need, I need this in me. It's not enough just to know it objectively or to read it or for somebody else to tell me about it. And that's the gospel. It's for you. I've got to respond to this personally. I've got to eat it and drink it. I've got to be part of me. I've got to be part of it. It's so important that we understand that. That's what, that's what communion is. That's what it is to do this. But it's also part of us as a people. It's an individual thing, but it's a corporate thing. And there are things that we want to do corporately this year that we need this meal for. We need Jesus. We need, we need Jesus to be part of our lives. We need this hope to well up within us. We need to be the living embodiment of water in a desert. We need to know it, feel it, experience it, live it. And when we don't, and when it feels like I'm living on the wrong side of the metaphor, what do I do? I turn to the cross again. I remember he has rescued me. Death is conquered. The grave is not the end of the story. He's come for me. He's coming for you. We want to do two things this year I want to talk to you about very briefly and then we'll take communion. We want to plant a site of City Church in fish ponds. And we're going to do that in the first half of 2020. Ash, who you probably saw in the video, you know... I guess Ash George, who's been with us for a few months now, he's, he's going to head that up. And again, the first few months of next year, you watch and we'll let you know the dates, but we're going to start a site of this church in the, in the east of Bristol because the east of Bristol needs to know Jesus too. The hope that we have, the belief in God, needs to be, go further than where we are right now. And the other thing we want to do is we want to start a kind of next step meeting for people who we come into contact with through all of our social action ministries, so street life and, um, and city hands and the beloved ministry that we're connected with. There's all kinds of things that draw people in who are really not like us here in the room so much, and they need somewhere to go, they need a place that's home. We need to look after them and care for them well. And We're going to start a, uh, what we might call an encounter meeting for people, a shorter meeting, be food involved, lots of stories, so that they can know something about who Jesus is too. We'll be doing that again. Jess Welshman is going to lead that and so she's been with a team working on that for the last year, maybe more and that will happen, God willing, this year so watch out for that. You might already be involved in that. But to do those things, we need this meal because this meal reminds us, I'm not an independent agent. I I can't make water burst forth in the desert. I can't make a desert a place of springs. I can't strengthen anyone's hands or help anyone with their weak knees. I can't do it, but he can. God can. And that he can because he demonstrates it through the cross. Conquered death. That's what this meal is. So when we take this bread and drink this wine in a moment's moment's time, I want you to take it and take it like you're eating and drinking hope. Remind yourself, that's what this is. It puts hope in me like nothing else ever could. Here's my champion. On the pitch, he's beaten death. And that kingdom now lives in me. Father, we thank you so much for your help and strength. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for passages like this, which remind us, they're beautiful, Lord, but they remind us of a beauty that's real, that's tangible, that makes a difference to us, that we can live in. And I pray, Father, we would live as a church in the good of these passages yes we recognise life is tough it is like a desert sometimes and yes we struggle with all sorts of things but God but God I believe in a God who can change everything who ultimately is putting all things to right who has conquered death and called me into a kingdom that can never perish spoil or fade kept in heaven for you I pray Lord Jesus we'd be a people who live and love and believe in these things Amen So can I invite you, just as the band comes up, to go to the tables, take